0: This Ticker Podcast is brought to you by Broadridge Financial Solutions.
1: Hi, everyone. Earlier this year, our atmosphere's concentration of CO2 once again hit an all-time high. The greenhouse gas now registers at 416 parts per million, Considering that scientists say the maximum safe level of carbon dioxide to prevent catastrophic climate change is 350 ppm, it's hard to understate how bad this news is. Now, as humanity screws itself deeper and deeper into the era of climate crisis, two things are certain. First, our children won't inhabit the same world we do. And second, there's not much we can do about it. There will be more hurricanes, more floods, more disease, more mass migrations, and more climate-caused corporate bankruptcies like that experienced by California's electric utility PG&E. But that doesn't mean we can't do anything about it. Unlike yours truly, my guest today is an optimist, and I dare say just as much a pragmatist as well. Julie Gorte is Senior Vice President for Sustainable Investing for IMPAx Asset Management and Pax World Funds. Gorte believes we still have time to mitigate the situation. And she says, at last, some companies and markets are showing signs of waking up and smelling the coffee. Yet, for too many corporate boards, the issue still remains on the back burner, so to speak. I wanted to know why what it's going to take to get corporate boards to take global warming seriously. I bring a somewhat vague humanities and social studies background to the party. Julie Gordy is a PhD with a science pedigree and plenty of experience discussing risk with corporate directors. No worries, she has a lot more to say than me. And a little later in the show, we'll hear from Broadridge Financial Solutions Head of Corporate Issuer Strategy and Product Management, Kathy Conlon. He will tell us about some of the ways companies can communicate by responding to climate risk and other ESG issues. Now, here's my conversation with Julie Gordy.
2: There's a lot being done about climate change right now, but it's not enough to avoid what people in the scientific community have long been calling a crisis, and we're just starting to see that those two words combined on Wall Street um, and in financial markets. We, so climate change, we've known about it since the mid-1950s, but up until, I would say, the last five years, it hadn't really affected financial markets in mainstream financial markets very much. Um, and climate change is one of those, is a unique kind of problem, and one of the ones that the human race is really not good at solving. <laughs> so in order to solve this problem, is a long-term problem. The stuff that we put in the atmosphere will stay there for decades in the case of methane, and millennia in the cases in the case of some of the exotic um, perfluorocarbons, and, you know, at least 100 years when it comes to carbon dioxide. So the stuff that we put in the atmosphere is going to affect our descendants. Asking people to do something today that will not, that is expensive, that won't pay off for decades to centuries, is not something the human race has ever really asked itself to do. And we're really bad at solving those kinds of problems. This is not a wolf at the door. This is termites in the basement. So it, and we don't usually call the termite company until somebody falls to the floor. And that's pretty much what's kind of happening right now. Now, the reason that the markets are getting more interested in it, they started in the early 2000s getting interested because of the climate treaty that was signed in Kyoto. The U.S. did not ratify it, but enough other <clears throat> um, countries did, that it actually entered into force in like 2002 or three or something like that. Um, and so there was suddenly a price on carbon and carbon markets in many of the world's developed markets, and there was additional risk imposed on companies that were big emitters in those markets. So utilities... That really do the emitting. The fossil fuel companies aren't the hugest emitters on the planet. It's the people who burn the carbon that are, or burn the fossil fuels that are actually the big emitters. So utilities number one, Mm -hmm. Um, materials number two, industrials number three, and or uh, sorry, energy number three and fourth comes industrials and everybody else is in the noise. So there was carbon risk, and we saw that starting to get priced on markets. So utilities in Europe that depended mainly on coal really had changes in their values. We've kind of adapted to those changes by now. The reason that the markets are getting more concerned about it is because of the other kind of risk, which is physical risk, which it doesn't matter if you emit nothing. You can still have climate risk. So you could have been a completely carbon-neutral firm in Paradise, California, two years ago, and you still would have gotten burned up. Um, companies that are that have infrastructure spread across the landscape again, utilities, but big box stores, internet companies, the internet cables all go through a sort of fairly tight bottleneck on the east coast that if they are not moved will mean that the internet cables will be underwater in something like 10 years. Mm. So anyone can have physical risk and we're starting to see that. So we saw the damages after Hurricane Harvey and the you know the coastal storms. We're now starting to see damage estimates from the Australian fires. So insurance companies and reinsurance companies, in particular, are very aware of physical risk: floods, fires, drought, extreme partic- per- uh, precipitation, coastal storms, and to some extent, an expanding landscape of um, diseases. So we're seeing encephalitis now in temperate latitudes, which we it used to be just tropical. And that's going to happen more and more. Yeah, so that was kind of a long answer. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> well,
1: well, the the, the point being, you're, these risks are are being felt now.
2: Right. So we're starting to take take account of them now, a little.
1: A little, yeah, exactly. A little. They're materializing now, but I mean, boards still aren't prioritizing them. That's uh, correct. You've been again. You've been in this business for 20 years. Um, how can boards get out in front of this, these issues, and how can we incentivize them to, you know, build a sustainably competent um, organization?
2: Yeah, um, we're going to have to learn to think longer term. But um, I would suggest that instead of thinking it's either a short-term problem or a long-term problem, and believe me, financial markets are the most myopic markets in the world. For them, you know, for the typical sell-side analyst, the long term is three years, for some of them it's five years, but then it stops, you know, and everything else is the distant, misty future. The thing I would urge boards to start thinking of climate change as an indeterminate term problem. It could happen any time. You don't know when. We can't predict. You do know where the risks are growing. So you know that the probability of being affected by something like Sea Level Rise is far greater if you're in New Jersey than if you're in Denver. Right? On the other hand, if you're in Denver, you need to worry about fire insurance or fire and the costs of that are going up. So knowing that the vulnerabilities are increasing and which vulnerabilities are increasing and then thinking this could happen tomorrow. Not, hey, this is going to happen over the next century. We shouldn't worry about it. It's a long-term problem. That's the mindset we need
1: to create. And uh, something like PG&E. Um, is an right. example of oh, <laughs> what can happen if you ignore these risks, and, and it
2: is a poster child.
1: <laughs> can we can we dive into that? I mean, what what can boards learn from that? And I, I noticed that that you didn't invest in it. Um, what, what's right. the lessons from PG&E then for boards?
2: Well, just being aware of physical risk and aware of your your vulnerability to that is something that. People are waking up to if, you know, we've been worried about climate for two decades. Um, In the sustainable investment business, we've been filing resolutions, shareholder resolutions related to climate for at least that long. Um, And up until three years ago, um, none of them even got close to passing, not that passing is the only milestone to pay attention to. Companies can, you know, see these things as canaries in the mine and do something about them, or they can just say it didn't pass, we're not going to do anything tough you know, and then wait till something becomes a problem. But we're, I think that the the dawning realization that people are having is, you know, the first thing you have to do in any 10-step or 12-step program is admit that you have a problem. Then you start thinking, all right, what can we do about this? How can we, in most cases, it's going to be adapt, but in some places, it's going to be preventive. And that's the PG&E lesson. So PG&E, what they didn't do was take really good care of their rights of way and, They have a lot of transmission lines strung across a lot of very fire-prone territory that's getting drier and hotter. And that's every single climate model says that. Um, It is easy to think of a problem like that as being something that you'll solve when you have enough money to do it or you'll get to it at some point. It's always eternally on the middle burner. But if you contrast that with the other, I think it was like San Diego Gas and Electric which made a very interesting counterpoint to PG&E. It's got the same, more or less, the same territory, only if, in, only, if anything, it's high, hotter and drier because it's further south. Um, and they have been doing a better job of taking care of their rights away. If you are determined to be the source of ignition of a forest fire, you, the Forest Service or, you know, relevant agency can charge you with the bill for suppression. And that can run into the hundreds of millions of dollars as we've seen. And that is why PG&E had to declare bankruptcy. Um, So taking care of your rights of way is one of those things that you have to do in this new environment, not because it's, you know, move it from the middle burner to the front burner. I mean, suddenly, you know, making sure that you're not vulnerable to those, that kind of risk is no longer a, well, it's a when-we-can-get-to-it problem. It's an actually it's a now problem.
1: That sounds like a risk that um, it, it doesn't fit into the usual box ticking. Because uh, right. my understanding is that PG&E did tick all the boxes, all the right boxes, but you went a little bit further, unlike some, maybe some other investors, and looked at this right-of-way issue and saw that it was a problem, and indeed it was.
2: PG&E has a lot of pluses when it came to sustainability. They were diversifying into renewables and they were doing it in part that's just because they're in california and california has a higher mandate um for that but they had a lot of pluses it's just you know this kind of risk isn't something that hits you only if you're really bad on a lot of counts it can hit anybody no matter how good or bad they are so you know being aware of what the risks are the physical risks of climate are and then is the first step. The second step is saying, "All right, well, what should they be doing about it? What, how can the company let its investors know that it is aware of this risk and adapting to it?"
1: And that's one one of uh, one of the risks that directors look at. There's regulatory, reputational, variety of risks.
2: Litigation. Litigation. And physical. Yeah. And then there's also what something we call transition risk. Um, And transition risk is, okay, if everybody else in the world gets it and they're moving to a low-carbon system or adapting in whatever way is appropriate for them, and you're not, pretty soon you're going to be uncompetitive. We've got the EU now talking about imposing a carbon tax on trade with the U.S. because the U.S. has (laughs) opted out of the Paris agreements and left, and we have no national system to limit emissions. So if they apply a carbon tax to all U.S. goods, that's another sort of form of transition risk that directors at least need to be aware of.
1: Because the regulatory risk, at least in the United States, kind of isn't really there, right? We've got Trump and his crew, uh, um, probably going to get reelected. Uh, We've got the SEC who, who really doesn't, uh, my understanding is uh, they are not on board with, with any kind of mandated disclosure a- along these lines at all. And it's really kind of left up up to individual companies.
2: Yeah, it's well, they did issue guidance in 2010, 2010, 2011, Hmm. back then. Okay. But it was interpretive guidance, and it said, yes, these things, both climate risks and opportunities, can be material, and you should report them, and here's a guide. Um, But it's never really enforced that. It just basically said, hey, this comes under Reg SK, which it does. But that isn't the same thing as sort of really keeping toes to the fire by enforcing it and checking on company reporting and seeing whether it is whether it comports with the requir- requirements for reporting material risks. So, and, but you're right, you know, with, you know, the current crew in Washington is not interested in this stuff. In fact, they sort of have this idea that it's not happening, maybe a hoax. There are a lot of other countries that are moving, but I wouldn't say that there's no regulation in the United States. So we have the, California has its own system that is regulatory, so does Reggie, the northeastern state. So to the, and there are several cities where they have implemented measures for emitters in the city or for other firms that are in their jurisdiction with respect to climate change. So it's, but right now it's more of a crazy quilt than sort of a national program. We do need a national program. Everybody does, despite the fact that Europe is moving ahead and Asia, most of Asia, not China, but Japan and, you know, several others, Australia, well, no, not Australia, There.
1: Australia is like basically, well, Australia we more do. of a case study, right? They're, I mean, they're going out of business, I think. They're just basically closing down, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, that's going to happen to a lot of folks, let's be honest, right? So I don't, I think that climate is, for many firms, an existential risk. And fossil fuel producers, the The first one we've seen this happen to is coal. It's got one foot on the banana peel and the other in the grave. Hmm. Um now you know that's not something that's going to happen it's already happened we're expect you know they've all impaired their assets yes china is still using coal yes india is still using coal but there's a lot of pressure on both countries to to phase that out and china is trying but if your only markets are china and india and they have their own the reason they use coal is because they have coal you know so if you're a u.s producer you don't have very many options
1: again we're all swimming in the same pool here and um Am yeah, I understanding you correctly? We're talking about sort of the barriers why why in particular U.S. companies really are kind of behind on this. Is uh, boards just well they don't understand that it's now it's happening now, I guess, and they and they don't really understand the connection to business risks.
2: Right. I don't think they've been particularly forward-looking. Most of them in thinking of physical risk. Usually, you wait. You know, I mean, what I've seen. Is the companies will wait until something really big happens, like Sandy or Harvey, or, or like the fires, fire seasons in California. Not so much this year, but the two before that. And they'll say, Hmm, we better, we better get on the ball here. And that, you know, you can still get ahead of it if that's all you do. There are, you know, it's just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it will happen tomorrow. It can, but it, you know, there's no guarantee. So. There's a lot of room for companies to still act, to to still take account of these risks and manage them or at least disclose, you know, here's what we're looking at in terms of managing these risks. Starting somewhere is absolutely a priority.
1: I'm going to, I, I just to sort of take a, a devil's advocate approach here, um, there's even pushback, you, you might argue. Yeah. Um, um, uh, there is money to be made uh, on so-called disaster capitalism, money to be made on the opposite, on on just letting the yeah. status quo continue going on the way it is. Uh, if everyone thinks, you know, like I do, that it's, it's just going to get worse and worse, why not party it up while, while things, <laughs> while things just go on. down the toilet, basically. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, that's a, there's a lot of money to be made, you know, so there, the divestment movement for the fossil fuel industry started in 2012, when Bill McKibben basically put that on the table, and at first, you know, there weren't that many adherents, now you're seeing more and more of the big funds, pension funds, you know, and the like, um, say, all right, well, we're going to at least get out of coal, you know, that's, that's a really easy place to start, because right now it sucks as an investment anyway. And it has for a while. Actually, <clears throat> the energy sector as a whole has underperformed the S&P 500 for more than a decade. So mm. I think that's kind of woken a lot of people up to say, hey, this <laughs> uh, we used to think of these as blue-chip stocks. They're not looking that way anymore. We don't really see a path forward. This isn't temporary, the constraints. And, um, and these guys,
1: as everyone knows, they're being subsidized, right? They're being... Yeah, there's
2: a, yeah. There's, a, which is there's even, a fair amount of subsidy yeah
1: which makes that performance even more shocking really like
2: <laughs> yeah when you look at the tax breaks and tax credits and things that they have you know it's pretty shocking that governments are still doing that I think there was a few years ago somebody in the World Bank or IF or somebody and you know estimated that it was the subsidy was to the tune of about 11 billion dollars Wow per
1: day or something. per day just,
2: wow. huge. Globally. And an awful lot of that is, you know, Saudi Arabia. It's not just us, right? There's a lot of subsidies going on. I mean, the countries that really have the conundrum in front of them, think of Norway. Mm -hmm. The Norges Fund, their pension fund, it's kind of, they are part of the most progressive group of companies on Earth when it comes to thinking about climate change. Europe, the EU, they know that they need to do something. They've been working on it forever. They've all ratified the... Kyoto know, Protocol. They are in the Paris Agreement. They, nobody's actually meeting their, their commitments to the Paris Agreement, which is sad. It's not just us. You know, we pulled out. Everybody else is falling behind in terms of what they committed to. But if you're, you know, one of your biggest firms for your whole country is an oil company operating in the North Sea, you know, and you suddenly say, Hey, I'm going to divest, you're going to get a lot of blowback. You know, so they've got a tightrope to walk in their pension fund, and that's not atypical. You know, that's as long as there is money to be made, pulling oil and gas out of the ground and selling it to somebody who's going to burn it. There's going to be somebody who is going to make that buck and do just what you said. They're going to say, "I'm going to make money today, and we'll, you know, if I have enough, maybe I'll survive tomorrow."
1: So they have to be dealt with. Um and then, I think and they just
2: have to be shouted down. To be perfectly
1: honest, to be, yeah. So, and that, and Canada too, it has its oil sands, and and people have these essentially sunk right. costs. Uh, what's the word? Uh, uh, stranded assets at some point, um, and presumably investors are are keeping that in mind too.
2: Yes, yes, they are. Is the, the we have proven? Time and time again on financial markets, that as long as there's a buck to be made, even if you have to cheat to do it, <laughs> somebody's going to pick up that and run with it.
1: So there are a variety of, of physical and systemic risks. And there are a variety of reasons why boards are just not getting on the bandwagon on this. What can we do to get them on board? What, what does it have to be... I mean, we've been at this for twenty years. You, you have. You've seen change, but you know what is it going to take to, to get boards to to take this seriously?
2: Well, let's, so. Just I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, and I think you said something about BlackRock and their commitment. That got, I think, more coverage than anything else in the whole world for about five days. Larry Fink's letter saying that they're going to take climate risk seriously. Now, the divesting and getting out of things, it's probably only going to affect their actively managed funds, which is, what, 10% of their assets? Right. But the—I'm sure, I feel like this commitment is from the heart, and I feel like he was speaking about something that really means a lot to him and to that firm. Let's just imagine that one thing that translates into is BlackRock voting for shareholder resolutions asking companies, to give their shareholders a plan for what they how their business will change in a scenario in which we really do keep warming below 2 degrees. Mm-hmm. So if we really limit emissions to you know what the carbon budget that is compatible with a 2 degree further warming and there's one already built in right so the only degree we're playing with one degree of warming really. If we stop emitting tomorrow the globe will be 1 degree warmer in a century. So if they started voting, you know, for those shareholder resolutions instead of against them, that would get the attention of board. It would get the attention of board if Fidelity did that, if Vanguard did that, if American Funds did that. You can wait for that signal to be sent and hope that the SEC protects you, which they're trying to do now by the limiting the number of shareholder proposals offered. There's a they have a rule outstanding right now that a change in the rule to the shareholder proposal process that would probably eliminate, just by historical analysis, about a third of all shareholder resolutions filed. Then they have all these new guidelines about how they grant exemptive relief to companies that ask to have a shareholder resolution not appear on their proxy, and one of those is called micromanagement. And there, and we don't really know what that means, but we know that the SEC staff has excluded some climate-related proposals on the basis that it would be micromanagement of the company. So... Uh, You know, we will need a different regulatory infrastructure to really support this kind of action on the part of shareholders and their ability to get that message to boards. But the shareholder resolution isn't the only channel, right? You can communicate to boards many ways. You can write them letters. You can uh, do things in the press that call attention to the company, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of rating.
1: (laughs) You can Uh, write them strongly worded letters?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, we have. You know, for many years, I wrote – So just last year I wrote to I think it was fifty six companies in our international fund in the utilities and materials sectors. Those are huge emitters. And asked them sort of a nested set of questions. One, do you report emissions? If not, do it. Two, if you report emissions, do you have a target for reduction? If not, set one. Three, if you have a target but it's not a science based target compatible with two degrees, change it and Mm -hmm. make it compatible at four. If you do all that other stuff, then do a TCFD report because you need to do scenario analysis. And I got responses back from about 12 of them. So even just one little investor like us writing letters to, you know, big global companies on a subject like that, especially now when it's got so much attention, you do get some responses. It's not, is it universal? Is it what we would love to have? No, of course not. You know, we, it's always hard to get the attention. Of the corporate community and the director community, they have a lot of things they need to do. It's not an easy job, but this uh, is one they need to pay attention to uh,
1: uh, engagement. Uh, is 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 the way to go? Is that is that what resonates with, with with directors? And and along those lines, Julie, like I'd really like to get at the headspace of directors. What when you engage with them? What what resonates with them? What makes them go? Oh, okay. Uh, you know there are all these risks. Um, uh, they have pointed them out. Um, is it the, the risk to their company? Is it the risk to their paycheck? Is it the risk to to uh, their reputation? What's the uh, you know is, is, what's the magic incantation that that can get people to um, to really latch on to this?
2: So the biggest, the best attention-getting device often is to say, "Hey, your competitors are doing this." <laughs> Okay. So one of the reasons that we often spend a lot of time in engaging with big companies is because they are bellwethers, and if they do something and they say, all right, we're <clears> – <throat> what was the one that just did it? One of the European oil firms that said we need to be a trans- in transition to being a renewable energy company. It's like the first one, and I can't remember the name right now,
0: <clears throat>
2: but – you know, if, if one of the big, if it's not an oil major, I don't think, but if one of the majors did that, and I, you know, so there's a, there's a sort of bellwether effect from the big firms. Another thing I think that directors need to pay attention to is that the credit rating agencies are mm. all really getting interested in climate risk. S&P has published some stuff that shows that they think 60% of the S&P 500 is facing physical climate risk. Um, they wrote a report a couple years ago saying that there were, I don't remember what percent, it was small, but it was like 18% or something like that, of companies that actually reported impact in their financials from climate change in the previous year, which is, you know, I mean, if this is one of those, if you don't think this can happen to you, look at who all it has paid attention to. And then one of the credit rating agencies, Moody's, just bought 427 which is a non-profit that basically assesses the physical risk of every company and its supply chain in AQUA, in the all-country world index. Um, if Moody's buys those, <laughs> buys that, you have to be thinking, okay, so they're going to wrap their credit assessment, credit rating around physical risk to climate. If they're paying attention to it, I better pay attention to it.
1: Your conversations, when you engage... Paint me a picture of the people you're talking to and how receptive they are to your arguments. When you approach, say, a medium-sized company, they've heard of this before? Or, or, or do you, you know, really open their eyes to, to all these risks? Is this kind of the first time they've, they've been hearing this?
2: The, it's completely dependent on the company. I would say that when we engage, since engagement is voluntary, Always voluntary. Even if you file a shareholder proposal, yeah. the company doesn't have to engage with you. They can just say, "What the heck? We'll put it on our proxy. Let the shareholders vote. It's not going to pass." But when we so when we engage, we're usually engaging with companies that are uh, that are okay to talk with us about this. Which usually means that those are the companies that are doing something. In other words, a company that has a that knows that it isn't doing anything. It's got a terrible record. It's going to be hard to defend. They usually won't engage with you. They usually blow you off. Um, So when we engage with companies, we usually find that they have things that they are quite proud of and they are more than happy to tell us about. When I mentioned that, the engagements I did last year with the European materials and utilities companies, every single one of the ones I talked to had, you know, quite a record of, you know, we've set a goal, goal, it is science-based or it's getting certified as a science-based target. We're thinking about a TCFD report. We're working with WBCSD to assess this. You now they had a lot of positives. Um, and you can, there's almost always, when you can sort of suggest another one, like there aren't that many companies that have done TCFD reports, you can almost always say, I had a dialogue yesterday with a big U.S. retailer that isn't even a big emitter, but in its supply chain there's a lot of things that are big emitters, like deforestation in the soy and cattle and leather supply chains and so forth. Um, And they are thinking about doing a TCFD report, meaning that they need to assess what could happen under different scenarios to them, different scenarios in terms of warming and different scenarios in terms of mitigation.
0: You're listening to The Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, the sound of global investor relations.
1: I just wanted to jump in here. You've heard Julie Gordy mention the TCFD a few times now. That is, of course, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. In 2017, the TCFD issued a detailed set of voluntary guidelines to help companies give investors better information about the potential financial impacts of a warming climate. In a recent Ticker podcast, I spoke with Richard Mahoney. He led an update survey looking into how much progress U.S. companies have made implementing TCFD recommendations. One might quibble, but the upshot being not much. Yet. One of the challenges uncovered by the survey was coming to grips with a recommendation on supplying investors with analytical tools, including scenario modeling. Corte offers some sympathy... And advice for struggling companies. So what's what's keeping the, the vast majority of companies from getting on board with the T C F D recommendations?
2: Well it's just I mean if you think back to the C D P the Carbon Disclosure Project, yep. the first two years that was in effect there weren't that many reporters either. It took a long time before the majority of these big indices you know, the vast majority of the big indices actually did report to C D P. Now it's unusual to find you know, a company and a big developed market index that doesn't report to C D P. It takes a while to catch on. What this that, however, was a cakewalk compared to PCFD, especially well, the only part the only pillar of TCFD that isn't a cakewalk is is scenario analysis. And I'll try to illustrate this. The scenario analysis means that you need to construct a scenario, either of physical risk or of mitigation. Now mitigation you know, is a little bit easier. So it's not that hard to count your emissions or to figure out how to count your emissions. So if you're saying, all right, let's say right now our emissions are double what they need to be mm-hmm. in the 2020 20 to 2025 20, period. Um, so how do we, you know, pull them down by 50% in the next five years? I mean, essentially what two degrees means is that every company, every person, everybody on Earth is going to have to have zero net emissions by 2050. So going from where we are to zero in essentially 30 years. I mean, that's pretty daunting, right? So that's kind of not that difficult a scenario to run. The physical risk scenario, on the other hand, means that you have to be able to get into the climate models. Climate models, I know I have a daughter who is studying for a Ph.D. in climate science, and she can get into the climate models, are anything but easy to understand. You need to be able to get into the models in what's called CMIP-5 or CMIP-6, and look at what they are predicting and where they're predicting it for and figure out what the consensus is. Now, the IPCC has done some of that, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the UN body that's responsible for climate change. The But um, like getting someone who can model in CMIP 5 or CMIP 6 is something most financial firms, most companies don't have. Huh. Um, so you're going to have to get the expertise on board. Then what you need to do, these models have often... You know, they cover the globe, many of them. Many of them are regional, but a lot of them are global. And their resolution is like a degree of arc. That is, That could be hundreds of miles on the ground. So if you put the same, if the same cell contains Los Angeles and Las Vegas, one of those has sea level rise problems and one of them doesn't. You can't necessarily assume that the risk is uniform within that cell. So you need to downscale the model so that you can understand what happens at a particular place rather than a very large place. Um, That can be done. That's what 27 does and Carbon Delta and the others, the, the other physical risk raters. So getting that kind of expertise on board in companies could take a while. Now, maybe all you need to do is hire a climate scientist or you need to go to a service, you know, one of the raters or somebody who can consult with you to show you how to do it. Boards could probably arrange to do that. They often do have access to outside experts. And that might be your first step is to go to a university with a climate modeling capability or a department of atmospheric and, ocean, ocean, bleh, atmospheric and oceanographic studies or other, you know, climate department and say, can you help us with this? Can, here's where all of our, you know, our significant assets are. What risk do we face, uh, now and in the future? And what risk would we face under RCP 8.5? Which is the like five degree doomsday scenario? What risk do we face under RCP 2.5, which is the the Paris Agreement?
1: Wow, sounds sounds like a great growth industry for your, yeah. your daughter. Went into the right biz.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling her that. Wow, <laughs> I think she knows it.
1: My my mom worked at McGill as a secretary uh, for the climate research group there, and um, uh, they were uh, the absolute smartest people you'd ever know. Yeah. I, they just the whole just to study weather is, is astonishing, and I, I didn't even they spoke a language I couldn't even understand.
2: Uh. Yeah, right. <laughs> I no, my daughter gave me her. She rehearsed her speech at the AGU, which is on Antarctic ice mass balance with me about 20 times, and, you know, it's like, (laughs) so I now know more about Atlantic, or Antarctic ice mass balance than, you know, than the normal person, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know know. But here's what I do know, if we lose the continental ice in Antarctica, that's 200 feet of sea level rise. Think about what that would do. I mean, there are most of the world's stock markets are less than 200 feet above sea level. I mean, this is going to make the term "underwater" have new meaning on stock markets.
1: Uh, what's the uh, outlook for that? Is that 100 years away, or 200 years away? Or do...
2: you know, we don't really know. I mean, okay. we know. We pretty much know. I think that it's not 100 years away. That's. I mean, it's more than that, right? So ice, that kind of ice melts very slowly, <clears throat> but. Every time we go back and check on it, and I, there are two places you really care about, right? So Greenland is 20 feet, and Antarctica is 200 feet as the level rise, and everything else is, you know, feet or inches, but mm-hmm. a lot less. Um, so the ice in Greenland, I think there was a recent paper in one of the nature journals, or some scientific journal, that said that the ice is melting six times faster than we thought. Um, there are, the BBC just did a series on you know, we, we visited the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, which is one of the most vulnerable to sea level rise, because even a one-degree warming in the ocean that touches the head of the glacier is enough to really get melting going in a big way. So are we talking a couple centuries or one century or two? You know, we don't know, right? We That's one of the least well-understood parts Mars. of the climate scenario prediction business. Um, but... Knowing how important it is and with all the interest in it, I think it's it's fast becoming one of the best-studied areas, and we're going to know a lot more about it soon. But even think about it this way, like even if it were 200 years, and that was one foot a year, you know, when I was working in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, the walk I took at lunchtime, you know, I could point out to you the number of houses that were going to have permanent surrounding by water with one foot of sea level rise.
1: So, and and just just to circle back then, one thing boards could do would be not just to hire people like your daughter as a consultant, but they'd be on the board themselves, right? That would be...
2: Yeah. Now, Exxon put a climate scientist or a climate expert on the board. Putting, you know, is that enough? I don't know. I mean, in order, you can put somebody on the board and then not listen to them and they will have zero impact. If you put somebody on the board that you do listen to, great, great. What's even better is to put more than one person on the board on a critical issue. And one voice, you know, if, it's, if you're having one person that's there to represent her whole gender or his whole sexual preference mm. or the field of climate risk, and then, the, you know, everybody else is sort of the old mindset, it's not going to help much. You, you know, putting somebody on the board is a great step, but you have to put somebody on the board along with the commitment that you're going to listen to them and they are going to have resources
1: pardon my ignorance are there are there are there any boards now that have committees say the climate change committee kind of along with the audit committee or the artificial intelligence sort of committee is there anything like a a climate change committee on boards
2: i don't think i've seen one that doesn't mean there isn't one i don't i
1: haven't
2: memorized all the boards there's usually something on you know there's if there's a risk committee that's it belongs there if it doesn't have its own committee
1: oh okay yeah it should have its own committee though i mean it's
2: I, I absolutely. For some companies, absolutely. There, you know, there's a range of vulnerability out there in the world.
0: <clears throat> and
2: interestingly enough, this is one of the things I learned when I talked to some of the people at one of the climate raters, the Physical Risk Rating Association uh, organizations. Um, they said the industry with actually the most physical risk is the semiconductor industry. If you were just looking at risk, the risk map based on what you know about the emitters, you would never ever predict that. Right. So if just knowing that, to start with, if you're the member of the board of a big semiconductor company, it's kind of like, all right, where the hell is that risk coming from and what can I do about it?
1: Why is it a risk for semiconductors?
2: Because of where their supply chain is and how vulnerable it is to some of the impacts of climate change. A lot of it's in Asia, <clears throat> and there are some various kinds of physical risks. Well, we've seen this before, right? So if there's like one or two semiconductors, um, silicon foundries in the world and they're close to sea level, you have to worry.
1: Huh. Okay. Well, yeah, that would make sense. Sure. If there, Anything close to sea level is, is, is an issue, for
2: sure. Right. And that, it doesn't even have to be your foundry. I mean, it's, when I said there was one foundry in the world or two or something, that, that's how it used to be. I don't know how many there are now, but there aren't many. And so every semiconductor industry depends on somebody else for silicon wafers.
1: And, and it's even more complex than that, and we can definitely get in the weeds. But if, if uh, I heard if, you know, if Greenland melts, the, uh, the Gulf Stream stops, uh, suddenly Northern Europe turns into Baffin Island, basically. Um,
2: there is a, a sort of catastrophic cooling scenario that if we interrupt the, what's called a the thermohaline cycle, the ocean sort of overturning currents, which are very big and very deep, and you know, if you interrupt those things, then yes. Northern Europe could, in fact, be plunged into a, into a very wintry scenario. It could end up being very cold there. Um, and very quickly,
1: too. It's, very we're not talking 100 years for, like, you know, 10 years kind of thing, right?
2: Well, that's what I see. I'm not an expert on that. I have seen that in at least some scientific papers that I looked at, this has been a while, right, so a few years ago, um, where they were saying that when it has happened in the past, it happened in decadal timescales, not... Hmm centuries.
1: So that's that's a risk that is, uh, I guess, more human beings can process a little bit quicker. Uh, Having said that, again, I'm such an optimist, but, you know, a pessimist, but I think I think people adapt to almost anything, you know. <laughs> life life could well, just go on. People, I think it was Tolstoy, not to sound too liter- literary, but <laughs> and he'd say it better. But yeah, he basically said people will live in garbage cans. You, you they'll tolerate anything. You can basically do anything to them, and, and people will just adapt to Northern Europe being uninhabitable, <laughs> essentially.
2: You know? Oh, well, they will. I mean, this is. I am not of the opinion that climate change will wipe out life on earth i mean earth has been a complete snowball in the past and there's still life on it what i think what matters is not are humans going to be able to eke out an existence by living in trees and eating grass no that's you know sure yeah (laughs) there could be a few of them doing that in antarctica but you know it's that's not it would interrupt everything we know about the patterns of civilization it would also create a lot of conflict when people's livelihoods are threatened. When agriculture is no longer practicable because of persistent drought, which is, let me just mention a word here, Sudan, people don't sit there and die. They fight. You know, so that's what DOD and a lot of other Ds of OD around the world, our own DOD, considers mm-hmm. climate change a threat multiplier for that reason. Hmm. Yeah. The, 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 it's funny there. Like one of the jokes, right, that we often tell or that often gets told is, there are So one of the big emitters on the world is cows, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Mm-hmm. And it is not farts. It's not cows. It's not coming out of the rear end of cows. It comes out of the front end of cows. So they burp methane, basically. And they burp a lot of it. And they have there's been some scientific inquiry into what kind of thing you might be able to do to mitigate that. And they found that if you change their diets in certain ways, that they will burp a lot less methane. And one way... One thing you can feed them that will make them quit burping so much is feed them seaweed. So the sort of Kafka-esque joke is all we have to do is wait for the sea to come <laughs> to them, and then there'll be plenty of seaweed
1: out there. <laughs> yeah, we'll muddle through somehow.
2: <laughs> right. Hmm.
1: But we don't have to muddle through, is, is the point. We can, if, if, if well, board... I,
2: you know, here's the reason for optimism. Um, there is a lot going on now. We have a coalition of companies called We Are Still In that is still committed to reducing, uh, to mitigating climate change. This was the last year in the United States there were more companies, I think I just saw this on Bloomberg New Energy Finance, there was this record set in the, the amount of uh, renewables purchases by big companies. You're seeing big companies like Amazon and Apple and you know a lot of the other ones powering their uh, server farms, which are quite energy-intensive with renewable energy so there's a lot going on the reason to be optimistic is because the more bad stuff happens the more it's going to be tough to be a climate denier and the more likely it is that we will take action every single bit of action we take to reduce emissions is going to help in the long run It is yes you know four degrees is catastrophic but it's not as bad as five three degrees is is terrible but it's not as bad as two Whatever we do to reduce emissions will help. It's not like there's a dividing line between the world we know and the one we wish we, you know, the, the one that is a catastrophe. I mean, yes, we've drawn a line at two degrees, but it is, like most lines in this business, arbitrary. Now, the point is, anything you do to mitigate will keep somebody's great, great, great grandchildren, give them a little bit more of a fighting chance than they have if we do nothing.
1: And that's someone's great-great-grandchildren, something I don't even give the slightest thought to. As I think you you touched on earlier, humans aren't very good about thinking uh, in in timescales like that. Uh, Again, I think the way that this is going to resonate with directors and and corporate decision-makers is their children, their current children (laughs) – I, I I frankly think you have to, I have a theory, you have to go right to their families. I think you have to have their spouses go full Lysistrata on them, and I think you have to have their sons and daughters just, <laughs> just give them, you know, just dirty looks. And, and that that's oh, that's okay. the way.
2: <laughs> you are the first person who's raised Lysistrata in a podcast that I know of in my entire life. Well done.
1: It's, it's a technique. Yes, no, I
2: think it really does help. And there there actually has been some academic work done showing that CEOs are more likely to engage in sustainability initiatives if they have daughters. Ah. Apparently, sons are not quite as conscious-inducing inducing as daughters are.
1: Interesting. Yeah. But
2: yes, families are important. I mean, this has to be personal. It has to be about us right? and things that we care about. If you only care about money, you're going to buy Saudi Aramco and let future generations go down the tubes, that's their problem.
1: And right now, and I, I think you're talking about the bottom line, I'm sorry if I cut you off, but
2: um, no,
1: no um, really right now I don't know if there to what extent paychecks for management and, and directors are linked to to goals in this area.
2: It is getting more popular. It is not prevalent. Usually when there are links to sustainability goals like say diversity or mitigation or something like that, they're usually linked to a small enough proportion of the executive's paycheck that it's, you yeah. know, maybe a marginal incentive at uh-huh. best. Yeah. Um, we haven't seen like the, okay, you get 10 million stock options if you meet your science-based targets. I've never seen that.
1: Well, isn't that it'll something... It'll
2: usually be about a bonus or something like that.
1: Is that something you could see on a proxy or is that something you at PAX would push? I mean, that sounds like a good idea.
2: We, yeah, we've definitely raised it. It's been raised a lot by organizations like Ceres, for example, the and nonprofit that works with investors and companies on environmental and other sustainability issues. So, you know, there's more awareness of it. I think executive comp itself is something that is tough to fix. Um, We, you know, the executives take more and more of the company's earnings every year, and there doesn't seem to be any way of kind of stemming it. Um, And even though investors knew, now do in the U.S. and a few other places have the right to vote on executive comp plans at mm-hmm. least every three years, sometimes every every year, sometimes every two years, depends on what schedule you're on or you choose. The vast majority of those things get passed. By
1: yeah, but are they, are they predicated specifically on achieving no, climate change goals? No. Yeah, yeah. So
2: what you get to vote on is the whole plan, is the whole compensation plan for yeah. the named executive officers. And that's everything. You know, that's all about. Do you? What are your goals? Are they linked to performance? You know, what are the? <clears throat> you know, the uh, what do I call it? incentive um, compensation, and what is that linked to? I mean, that's the whole thing, the whole nine yards. So yeah, there. I think there's some scope there, you know, for more to be done. There's another player who could get involved in all of this that could actually create some impact. Although I'm not. And we're starting to see this, not here, so well, a little bit here, and that's the Fed. So, the, you know, we talked about the fact that, no, it no, isn't necessarily going to wipe out humans, but it will wipe out economies, and it could wipe out, you know, civilization, as we know it. Um, that becomes the domain of the Fed. They're the only, the central banks are really the only institutions in con- com- countries that are there to deal with systemic risk. And there's starting to be more and more awareness among central banks that climate change is, in fact, a systemic risk that could overturn whole economies, and they're starting to have more action on it. The leader at this point is the Bank of England with Mark Carney. Right. Bank of France is also in, you know, got some skin in the game. And there was recently a conference back in December, I want to say, or maybe November, at the San Francisco Fed specifically on... The threats to economic stability from climate change, and those papers are online. This wow, worth looking at.
1: They must be chilling, right? Yes,
2: this is all chilling. You have to sort of have a strong. If you have a healthy gag reflex, you're going to have a lot of. You're going to be throwing up a lot, right? But <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so, so they're, they're, a, they're a, a, a node for change too, the Fed. They, they're yeah. People listen to them possibly more than people listen to say investors.
2: Well, I, you know, it's not so much any one actor that's going <clears> to <throat> change it. We all have a stone to bring to the edifice. So ordinary bankers, you know, there's a move afoot to get ordinary, normal, everyday banks to stop providing debt mm-hmm. capital to coal producers or fossil fuel producers. I know, there's I spoke a, to
1: people at BNP Paribas, and they're uh, kind of flying that flag, leading exactly. that. Yeah.
2: They're mostly European, of course, at this point, naturally. Um, there's an unfriend coal movement that is trying to get insurance companies to stop insuring coal producers which could also have a huge impact there are you know ordinary citizens there are lots of things you could do you could go vegan for january you could cut a little bit more meat out of your diet you could you know there's all kinds of transportation options you know i just i bought an ev it's great
1: i hate to tell you we just bought a volkswagen last year (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we didn't, okay. we didn't actually mean to. It's kind of complex why we ended up buying the Volkswagen. But, you know, the the fact that they lied about their, it, it's not a diesel, but the fact that they lied about their, their emissions actually just didn't even enter our heads. It was based on completely different factors.
2: Yeah, no, I know. You go out with a, you know, sort of a list. I want this, this, and this, and then kind of what suits that best. I mean, they still make good cars, but you know, they didn't just lie about their emissions. They knowingly, deliberately cheated yeah you know so it wasn't just hey our emissions are a little higher let's not tell anyone it's like let's cheat the system you know which is i don't know that's a degree of malfeasance that sort of surpasses everyday normal fraud but
1: and yet they're not they're still getting pats on the head from guys like me i'm still buying their damn cars
2: yeah no i i get it i do i mean i'm i just i bought a chevy bolt you know am i fond of everything gm does no you know but that's a good car
1: yeah, I like my car, too. Oh. We now go to New York City, where Broadridge Financial Solutions' Kathy Conlin is standing by. Kathy, are you there?
0: I am. I have really enjoyed listening to this conversation. I've, I just, it's amazing, so.
1: Well. Uh, So, hopefully, our listeners are internalizing these issues. um, Now, so how does Broadridge fit into all that?
0: You know, as we think about the things that Julie talked about, I think one of the things, what what we're trying to help companies with is how a a company can leverage what they're already doing to showcase what they're doing around um, climate and other issues. So, uh, you know, how do they show their brand and, you know, to their stakeholders, including their shareholders, Mm -hmm. what they're doing around these issues. And so they have all these opportunities to to get their message, you know, whatever their message is, uh, you know, recognize, number one, that they have to identify the risks and opportunities around climate and all the other ESG issues. And then, number two, tell that story, because it's not enough just to identify it. So, you know, we help clients understand that all the touch points that they're already doing today, right down to their printed proxies and enhancing those printed proxies um, to tell the story in a much better way. And there's also technology that makes it easier for companies to sort of maximize their engagement. So things like digital proxies to be able to put a nice um, readable experience in a a digital form for people to read and understand, um, to do messaging, things like social media and other ways to actually reach their message out to other to their stakeholders and in particular the shareholders because we help them with their shareholder reach so you know we think we're in a good position because of all the communications we help enable for public companies that we're we're in a great position to help them uh... leverage what they're already doing and enhance it with um, various mechanisms that are going to get that story out so just as a really simple example um, when, when material goes out in hard copy, a lot of times, shareholders don't open the material because, for whatever reason, they don't recognize it for the important uh, information that it is um, or for whatever reason. So, we actually have mechanisms to put messaging on the outside of the packaging where a company can actually make sure that they put an ask on the envelope whether it's you know plant a tree read our ESG story um, you know look at what we're doing for the climate you know, vote your shares, et cetera, onto the packaging. So it actually alerts the person who's receiving the material that there's something important that they can do and also potentially to trigger them on an issue that may be important to them. So if they have, um, you know, we can help them understand their shareholder base demographically as well as part of our services so if they understand that they have sort of younger, uh, audience of shareholders, they may want to change the messaging depending on the demographics of their underlying shareholder base. So, um, so they're doing something today. We can help them understand who those shareholders are, and then. T- Pick the appropriate um, messaging strategy. And the messaging strategy can be a combination of things. It can be not just the messaging going out on hard copy, which that's one great mechanism, but how they tell their story electronically when, when email communications are going out. Uh, what you put in the subject line, as an example, can be very important to getting um, an underlying shareholder to open the email. Our studies have shown, so helping them put a good message in the subject line so the, the email gets open. And then, you know social media uh we can do social media campaigns um to help target messaging to shareholders on social media platforms so that it, when they're on social media which we know uh, so many people are today mm-hmm. uh they may see a message about one of their underlying positions and if they can click into they can click into that and they can actually get more information um about whatever message the company wants to deliver um, that's on a hosted platform that we can help them um, with. So I think there's a variety of mechanisms, and I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all approach, but depending, you know, we can help them, like I said, understand who their shareholders are uh, and demographics um, about them, and then help them prepare an appropriate strategy for communication. And this is, of course, goes beyond sustainability and ESG, but we think with this being such an important topic today, Um, getting the right messages out with the communications they're already doing is a really great way to, you know, sort of start the ball rolling in this communication of these issues to their shareholders.
1: And that's your Ticker Podcast. My thanks to Julie Gorty and Kathy Conlon. Please subscribe to the Ticker Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And for the latest news and commentary on all things IR, visit irmagazine.com. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassette.